Amen. We sing those words in the anticipation of our glorious rest with the Lord. And tonight, it's a pleasure to be once again together to worship the Lord. As uh, this morning, we had looked at the New Testament, like last time I came to visit you, uh, what I like to do in the evening service is actually to look a little bit on the Old Testament and look at a passage selected. Last time we looked at a minor prophet, Habakkuk, for those who were here. This time I wanted to bring you into a narrative which is from the first book of Samuel. First book of Samuel. And uh, is uh, found in the words of one text, one verse. But it will actually be half of the verse. Which is intended to be a thematic message, a topical message on the glory of God. The glory of God, and we are here in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. Chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. And we come to this little verse in chapter 4, verse 21. To give you a little bit of context. So Israel had been delivered from slavery. In Egypt, God had delivered his people through the wilderness, and they had come to the promised land, which had started what is known as the cycle of judges. However, the judges, which were supposed to be leaders of God's people, had failed big time. And because of their failure, God had brought punishment. And so leaders were desperately needed. And in this situation comes Samuel, which is a transitional figure. Between the era of the judges and the beginning of kings. He's the last judge, Samuel, but he's also a prophet who anoints kings for Saul. And what is recorded for us in this verse is actually a tragic moment in the history of Israel. We know that uh, this has to do with Eli. Eli was the high priest. And he had two sons. You might know the story, Ophni and Phineas. However, these sons had proven to be unfaithful. They had been contempt contemptuous of sacred matters. They have done things, immoral things, as we saw this morning in the house of God. Now, Eli is old. He had been negligent in chastising his own children. And he's given the prophecy by Samuel himself that he will lose the privilege to minister in God's house. And there's a form of judgment that comes not just in Eli, but in Israel as a whole. Because now he's, Israel wants to come to battle against the Philistines. And what do they bring? The Ark of God. The Ark of God is the symbol of God's presence. However... In the chapters before this, chapter 4 is recorded for us this catastrophic battle. Because Israel by this time is treating the ark of God as a good luck charm. And they are trying to lean on the Lord to bring victory while they have been unrepented. Particularly the sons of Eli. And God brings disaster. 30,000 Israelites die in the battlefield. The ark... The symbol of God's presence is taken away. 
And as the messengers are coming to Eli, who by now is old and heavy, relying on his chair right in front of his house, he receives this news. The ark has been taken. His sons are dead. But as soon as he hears the news about the ark being taken, he, he falls backward and breaks his neck and dies. And so we come to this verse, chapter 4, verse 21, that his daughter-in-law is about to give birth to a grandson. This is a joyful event. However, grandpa died. Daddy and uncle died. She herself is about to die. And the midwives are telling, you know, it's a hard season. But you know, at least you have a son. But she pays no attention. And we come to this verse 21. And she named the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we pray that you will indeed guide our meditation upon this text and in general upon your glory. God, show us your glory tonight. Do not pass by, Lord, but come and be with us, Lord, as we meditate upon your glory. And we meditate upon the tragedy of sin that brings the glory to depart. And we pray, come, come back, Lord. Come to us and walk among us in Jesus' name. I pray. Amen. Friends, uh, during the time of the Great Awakenings, time of revival, there was a minister in the old world in Scotland who, who wrote a text based upon these words. Now, this minister was persecuted by the state for preaching unauthorized by the time if you preached the gospel, you had to go in caves and hide. And he's preaching this text, meditating upon the fact that God's glory was about to leave England. Because England was persecuting true faithful ministers of the word. And the sins of the country had brought the justice of God. That God was going to remove his presence from the church of England. That was a tragic event. The problem that this minister was saying is that we were unconcerned about the important realities. So few people are lamenting over their sins. So few are crying for mercy. So few are flying to Jesus to find salvation. Which brought ultimately indeed to the disestablishment of the the church in the old world, the secularization of those lands who no longer, for the most part, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I believe that this warning may apply to us as America today of the 21st century as we face similar questions. And the question of our text tonight is this, as God's glory departed from us, comes in the light of a question. Has God's glory departed from us? 
As we see, the context here is of a woman who's giving birth. We just gave birth to our little child, Elisha. Now you try to imagine this picture of labor. And it is hard to reason with a pregnant wife while she's going through that pain. And the midwives were trying to comfort this woman by telling her, you have a son. And now she comes and she gives a name. But that name transforms the blessing of a child to a curse. This is her last sight. She's about to die. And everything in this story is wrapped in this name, Ichabod. Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory as the parted. The fact that she gives this name to the child is more than just, I don't know how to name it, I'll name it that way. Names in the Old Testament gave power, had meaning, had a providential ordeal attached to the name, which right now, the thought of this woman that is about to die is on the fact that the Ark of Israel has been taken away by the Philistines. We know episodes like this. When Rachel is about to die in Genesis, she wants to name the son, how? Benoni, the son of my affliction. But then, you know, her husband, Jacob, prevails, and so he calls him Benjamin, the son of my old age. But in this case, it's not so. The curse prevails because of what has happened to the nation, to God's people. Later we'll see Ichabod, the same young man, ministering for Saul, which implies that he will share in the judgment of, of, of Saul, in the house of Saul, and the exaltation of David as the true king of Israel. But that all the house of priests, because you see, in the Old Testament, priests descended from a lineage, from father to son to grandson. But God takes away his ministry because he did not obey the Lord. He did not discipline his sons and he will be removed. In fact, in 1 Kings 2, chapter 2, verse 27, we find that Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. And again, that name, Ichabod, that I, stands for not. So you could say there's no glory. But in the Hebrew original, it stands more like a question, as I said. That's why the title of our sermons tonight is, As the glory of God departed from us. As we look at the church and the state of the church in North America, where is the glory? That is the question, the elephant in the room. Glory. How should we define glory? Glory is the distinctive feature of the presence of God among these people. And so we want to take a journey now through Scripture, looking at the glory of God as it journeys with His people. Glory stands for weight, brightness, power, literally weight. It's ironic that in verse 18, just a few verses earlier, Eli is called heavy. He's heavy now, almost as a play on words. But here, here the reference is to, to, to the glorious presence of God that had filled his people, the tabernacle. 
the Shekinah, the Ark of God, which was a symbol of that presence, that box with the cherubim, that golden box, which contained the law of God given to Moses. Ever since the time of Exodus, ever since the time of the deliverance of God's people, all the way through the exiled, that ark symbolized the presence of God among his people. And so for it to be taken away by Philistines meant that God's glory had departed. Now we know from the rest of the book of Samuel that it took 20 years for Israel to gain back this ark. And what we see in this small little detail of verse 21 is that the greatest chastisement, friends, the, the greatest chastisement takes place when God removes His glory. When God removes His confirming presence from His church, the delight of His people is God's glory. And when God removes it, that is the greatest chastisement we could receive. And we must plead that God's glory stays with us. First, let us meditate through Scripture how God is the glory of His people. God is the glory of His people. We know from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation, we're going to do a, a very quick run, that God's intent is, was, and will always be to dwell with His people. And we see this in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, all the way to the Garden of Eden, Ezekiel 28, 13 speaks of the Garden of Eden as the holy mountain of God. Speaking of Eden, that means that that garden was meant to be a place where the, the, the language is almost of a temple. It was a cosmic temple. The garden is a, is a place where God was going to walk with Adam in the cool of the day. And his glory, his presence was going to reflect and, and fill the heart of Adam and Eve. In a perfect, sinless place, that garden was the reflection of God's glory as creation is today. As we look at the creation, it reflects the glory of God. Later in the story of the Old Testament, we find the same glory in the burning bush. As Moses has this personal encounter with God, he appears in a burning bush. That is God's glory coming down once again to deliver his people, to confirm the promise that he had given to Abraham's children. And so after the exodus, that act of deliverance, then we find the glory of God going through the wilderness of Israel in a cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. That is God's glory that goes as a presence abiding. So we see in Exodus 13, 21. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And you see from that story of the wilderness how God's people were and still are today to be completely dependent upon the glory of God. So that their movement could not happen unless the Lord comes with us. Unless the cloud moves, Israel did not move. When the cloud moved, they moved. They were so dependent upon the Lord. And then later... Before entering the land, we find God's glory now inhabited in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a moving tent. So now God, God gives instruction just before entering the promised land of having this moving tent, the tabernacle where he will dwell upon his people. He gives instruction, Exodus 33, 7, for example, everyone who sought the Lord went to the tabernacle. 
That, that was the way in which God's glory descends and we commune. And Moses went in and the glory of God shone upon his face as he came out from meeting the Lord. That tabernacle, when the promised land is occupied, was to be found in Shiloh. Joshua 18.1 Joshua 18, speaks of the whole congregation of Israel assembling together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle there. In fact, Shiloh is the, is the place where the episode recorded here takes place. Where the ark of God is taken away right next to Shiloh. And later on, David and then surely Solomon will move from the tabernacle to the temple. So now the, the glory of God gets more fixed, established, just like Israel is no longer wandering in the wilderness in tents. We, uh, we have the house of God. With the, we have the temple. And Solomon prays this way in 1 Kings 6. He said, this temple you are building, God promised I will be among the Israelites. And that was throughout the Old Testament where God's people met the glory of God in the temple. But something happens. Something happens. People continue, Israel, people of God continue to sin, which then leads ultimately to exile. And with the exile comes the destruction of the temple. And so once again, the glory departs. Tragedy of tragedy. And even as Ezra, Nehemiah, come back and tries to build the temple, when you go and look through Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, you see that the expectation is that God's glory has not returned yet. When, the, when some, some of them are weeping, some of them are rejoicing, look at Ezra chapter 3 verse 12. Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. Many of the old priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud. And, were, and when they saw the new temple's foundation, they wept aloud because they knew that that glory had not come back into the temple. It was awaiting the coming of someone. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant, notice this. The Ark of the Covenant, after the exile never appears. You will not find any more reference to the Ark of the Covenant, implying that after the exile, the Ark of the Covenant is lost forever. And the hope of Israel was crumbling as we then come to what? To the New Testament. And in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the intent to God is still to dwell with His people. And that happens through what? Through God coming down and living among us. How? Becoming flesh. And taking on. What, what does John starts? It says. He dwelt among us. That word is the same word that was used for the tabernacle. And so the incarnation. When God becomes man through Jesus Christ. Is the, is the peak. The mountain peak of this expectation of the returning of God's glory. So that you look at Jesus in the Gospel of John, dealing with the temple imagery, destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it. He's speaking about himself. That he's the world become flesh. That he is that glory that now has taken abode through the Son, Jesus Christ. That all the expectations of the Old Testament, now through the start of Bethlehem, now through Jesus coming into the temple, cleaning the temple, now through Jesus offering himself, 
destroying the temple and rebuilding it into three days through his death, burial, and resurrection is the supreme display of God's glory in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even later on in Acts of the Apostles, the same theme comes again. As at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down upon the disciples and all the way to then the book of Revelation. When you come to the book of Revelation, what do you see? The greatest expectation comes all the way to the end of Revelation as in the new Jerusalem, God will dwell with his people forever and perfectly. Revelation 11 Verse 19, for, for example, speaks of this heavenly temple. You, you will dwell upon your people forever. And so, friends, what do we, we see here? God knows that our greatest happiness is enjoying Him, His glory, and His presence. That is what his people need, and that is God's plan, is that his presence may be among us. His church presence visible. Judy Harrell once says, you were put on this earth to have fellowship with the living God. This is your goal, to be happy in who? In Christ. Friends, nowhere is the reality and the splendor of God's presence and character seen better than in Jesus Christ. When the angel comes and gives this promise to Mary for the incarnation, he says, you call his name Jesus. That name Jesus, Yahweh saves, God saves, is reversing the curse of Ichabod. That Ichabod, the glory has departed. Now the glory has returned through Jesus Christ in a lasting way. As I said, John chapter 1 verse 14 is clear. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father. You can almost say that all the promises of the Old Testament were fulfilled as God in that indeed walks among us through Jesus. God in, in Israel, He's walking among us in Jesus Christ. And then His perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Truly and completely God and truly and completely man, he offers himself to give us God dwelling among us and the Holy Spirit taking residence upon the believer. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. And so it is in Christ that we are happy, but we are also happy in the church. Isn't there a more glorious view of the church and the purpose for us in existing? Confessions of the past have speaking, spoken about the chief end of man. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is almost a mission statement for me and you. That what makes the church a church, friend, is the presence and glory of God. That nothing else is more important. As Psalm 26 verse 8 says, Psalm 26, verse 8 says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. That dead majestic brilliance of God is shown through Jesus, but it, it is visible through the church. The church is supposed to reflect the glory of God. 
That is our goal, friends. Just as Israel was supposed to display that glory, Ephesians 2 verse 22 says that the church is the dwelling place of God. The ultimate dwelling place of God. Notice that nothing can place, take the place of God. No comfort, no creature's comfort can supplant the presence of God. And so the test for you and me tonight is, are we unhappy? Are we unsettled if God's glory is not among us? There's a recent movie that came out which tells the story of the conversion of uh, C.S. Lewis. The most reluctant convert is called. C.S. Lewis was an uh, atheist in England. And during the 1900s, he, he lived there. He was very much reluctant toward the Christian faith. And he describes the way in which he treated God as an uh, atheist, as an unbeliever. He, during his childhood, sadly, his mother had died. But uh, he says this. He taught that prayers often, if, if he offers prayers in faith, God will grant his request. So I set myself to produce in prayer a firm belief in a recovery. And then he comments. Back then, back then when I didn't know God, I approached God not as a savior or a judge, but as a magician. I simply wanted him to restore the status quo. And when he had done what he was required of him, he would simply go away. That was the problem of Israel in the Old Testament. They were treating God as a magician. And God's glory departs and defeat comes. Friends, when we are self-confident, when we have a head knowledge about God that is void of a life that is transformed by this glory of God, when other joys in this life take priority over God and His glory, when we manipulate God for personal advantage, and then we refuse to come to Him, then God's glory can depart. You can't treat God like a mascot. And when we do the, that very thing, we may be facing the most terrible defeat you ever know. That is the problem, friends, in many, many today. They're ready to cling to God when they're in their hour of need, but you ask them to do anything to turn away, particularly from sin, and they won't. And the second point of our text over here in verse 21, 1 Samuel 4, 21, is that the sin of God's people, in this case Israel, threatened to make His glory go away. That works both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, friends. There's almost a movement in our test. The text says, the glory has departed. It went away. The glory of Israel disappeared as a sign of God's judgment. Departing here is the same word that the, the Old Testament Hebrew says for exile. It's almost as ultimately this will happen. God's glory will depart. The enemies of God, that's the, the, the most tragic thing. The Philistines had captured the glory of God, which is an, a very attack on the promise of God that he was going to dwell with his people. It's almost as if saying, we have been exiled from God. It's over. It's almost as it has already happened. 
Have you ever driven through a ghost town? I did that when I was in West Texas. And you sneaked into an abandoned house or even visit the ruins of ancient civilization. What is your first thought when you watch these documentaries? It's like, it's departed. The glory, that ancient glory that this kingdom had, is completely gone. This is how Israel was feeling at the moment that the, that the glory of God had gone away. The ark had been taken. That very glory that had brought them to the promised land, that ark of the covenant that had brought them through dry ground through the Jordan, had gone. But look, this woman... Her father-in-law is dead. Her husband is dead. Even the mother of this child is about to die. But nothing, nothing in her eyes is compared to the tragedy that the ark of God is gone. You may take away all those things, but she's like, the glory of God is gone. That was the amount of tragedy. Friends, sin has brought death. And banishment from God. Ever since Adam and Eve fell. And the problem of God's people here in this particular portion of our text. Is that they treated the ark of God as a talisman. As some sort of, you know, magic trick. Aladdin cup. You know that? That you, you move it and it gives you wishes. Aladdin comes out. Regardless of their conduct. Regardless of how they behave. Just give me what I want. That's idolatry. That's superstitious. And how many are going to God today in the church and doing the very same thing. When they fail to realize that this God wants, wants a life devoted to Him. That He wants His glory to reflect in me in the church. And the tragedy heightened later in the revelation of the Bible. In Ezekiel in particular. Let me read you Ezekiel 10 verse 18, 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth. Tragedy of tragedy. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine? Can you picture it in your mind? That... As everyone is going to the temple in Jerusalem, they're going through the ceremony, they're doing the sacrifice, and no one has even noticed the difference. That God's glory had departed. He was no longer in our pulpit. He was no longer in our, in our midst. Now you may say, you know, we are in the new covenant. That's, that's not going to happen to us. Friends, even in the church of the new covenant, our God is still a consuming fire. He still removed the candles from... New Testament churches in Revelation, he, he tells them the candle of his presence from Israel, from God's people, the very thing that sets you apart is my glory. Now, we cannot lose our salvation, that's for sure, but our fellowship with God can still be broken. And so God chastises us when he removes his confirming presence and glory. And he does so often when Churches become very superstitious. When God's presence is treated as a talisman for my personal wishes. Or when certain traditions take over the precepts and the rituals and 
they, they, they might help you to ease your conscience. You know, you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this for God and then he's going to give me that. Or I, I am approaching him so that he gives me that. But God is not your goal. Things you can get are your goal. And that is the same issue. And what happens? God withdraws himself from an apostate nation. When God is treated with irreverence and nominalism widespreads as we treat God as a magic trophy to, to come and grant all of our selfish desires and wishes, whatever claim we have to Christianity becomes worthless. It's like Esau who sought to inherit the birthright, but then he traded it for a, a little cup of lentils. Friends, we have to turn to God. This nation has to turn to God. We have to turn to the one that, and the only one that can resolve all of our problems. You know, you may think, you know, I'm talking about the glory of God. These are lofty thoughts, but it's how, how, do we, how do they relate in my life? I'm telling you. When you live before the face of God, when God's glory is in the moment, this church, what God can do when God's glory is among us. Your problems in life, your marital problems, your problems with your children, grandchildren, your problem with this and that, when God's glory is in the moment with you, what can happen? And that type of glory comes to us only through Jesus Christ. As we repent and turn to him, to what he has done for us at the cross. He, he was abandoned at the cross, friends. He knows how it feels like to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the trading of our promise that he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Through me abandoned, being abandoned because of the sin that I experience, I grant you my presence forever. And he took the curse so that we might never be cursed. That the, the, the price was high. But look at our text, the devastation that is brought from a pastor's family to an entire nation. You got Eli, you got his sons, they're coming into the temple, they're doing things they're not supposed to, they're treating God's offering with contempt, and the entire nation of Israel is brought to death, dev devastation. When sin dominates our life, even God-given joys such as having a child become empty. Even the joy of a newborn child was clouded by the tragedy of the glory of God having left. The, the sense of abandonment. And in one sense, this story also teaches us, yes, wives are supposed to submit to their husband, but oh, there's times that they better address the sin of their husbands to keep from the ruin that comes upon their household. This woman, apparently, she's more concerned about God's presence being gone than the deaths happening in her family. And that is not necessarily wrong. Maybe uh, she, she, didn't, she was speaking better than she knew at the moment. But her husband had none of this, none of this concern. He went and kept doing what he was doing as if it was nothing. What about Eli, who did not chastise his own children? He compromised the ark of God's presence in the name of partiality for his own children. We ask, where is God? Where is God? 
Friends, if we reject God like for Eli, he will reject us. When the church disobeys their master. Friends, it's more important, more important than, than even sacrifices, than, than doing certain things for God. The importance is the obedience from the heart. When that is in place, it's far more important. But when, like Israel, people start, start to pretend to force God's hand to defend us, while we unlawfully do as we please, whether it's as a nation, whether it's as individual, if God is no longer among us, nothing else matters. When people want to protect their image, allow for compromise, and our devotion becomes magic tricks so that we can get something from God instead of God himself. That is arrogant presumption. And it leads ultimately to destruction. As uh, John Calvin, famous theologian, says once, there is nothing more to be dreaded than that the Lord should allow us to lose reins. And that, le that leads us to the present. God leaves us to ourselves as a nation, a nation that has benefited so much. And we have seen the glory of God in this nation, haven't we? For generations. What God has done to brought revival. People... Countless people coming to him. You know, inscriptions on the wall. People wanting to consecrate their life. And then we come to today where no one wants to even consider what's happening. And we go, and what, what happens is that we, we're going through the motions. We're going through the motions. And nobody asks, where is the glory? Where is the glory? Where is God's glory? Has the glory departed from the church in North America? Or will it depart you see, we, 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 ha we have churches today that may appear, appear lively. They might have an outward show, but it's just appearance. Seek the Lord while he may be found, says the word. And that implies that there may be a time that the Lord will not be found anymore. And so we better go to him now. The God, if the God's glory goes, all the good goes away. And woe to us if God departs from us. We'll feel like Samson. We'll wake up one day and think, you know, I, I shall go out like I did before. Right? But he did not realize that the Lord had departed from him. As his hair was cut, he was taken into jail. Friends, we must not lose sensitivity to the presence of God among us. And the confirming presence over all that we do in the church in particular. That... The presence of God is all we need. If God is gone in the church, we'll, we'll, we'll just walk in darkness, I'm telling you. If we treat God as a talisman, as a mascot, then he will be deaf to our prayers. And we might be surprised that he doesn't hear to our wishes. And we may approach God using him for giving us something that will suit our, 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 our schemes. But his glory may withdraw from our sinful nation, cities, churches. And we see it all around, the fruits of it. Crime, destruction, immorality. And as I said, the church is in a great, great challenge right now. We can continue to go through the motion. We, may, we, make it, we do programs. We may hide behind activities and say, you know, let's keep going. Let's keep the, the ball rolling. But... This will avail nothing if God's glory is, is not in it. It will be useless. And the question is, does anyone care? 
that the darkness and the decline that we see is only the fruit of, you know, possibly God's withdrawing his presence and we want to turn back. The solution to this is to turn back just like our forefathers did and to plead with him and not just for an hour, not just for a certain moment, but with all of our life. The true revival happens when we, we come and we weep before God and we say, Lord, please have mercy on us. And we ask ourselves individually, what would Jesus say of you? I'm not asking just to look at the society, but of us, of us as we, we, we come and we, we, we plead with God not to leave us. That the God of our fathers may come back as we come back to him and to his word. Do we mourn for the church and for this nation with the prospect of being without the presence of God? That Scottish minister I told you about, preaching the word to a group of people gathered in a cave because the national church now had been apostates and they were going around persecuting the few faithful in the land. And there he was talking about the glory of God leaving the entire continent. Unless reverence and awe is restored in the worship of God, even the outward element of an ark will avail us nothing, only defeat. No, we have to be on our knees pleading to God to have mercy on us. Yes, Lord, we deserve to be left alone to ourselves. But I know, Lord, that you can turn things around. If we turn, if our heart, you know, if my people call upon me and my name and humble themselves and turn from their ways, I will restore them. In fact, the rest of this story in 1 Samuel chapter 4 tells us that God actually will get the glory out of this. He will punish the enemies of God, the Philistines. He will bring the, the, the ark back because with God, we shall do valiantly. When an entire nation realizes and humble themselves, this can happen. The problem is today you look at the church and the media, there's not much of this. There's not much of people humbling themselves. There's not much of people praying. There's not much of churches that are willing to see the fact. No, instead we see compromises. Self-sufficiency. Relying on an unconditional acceptance no matter how things are. And then history comes back and repeats itself of these cycles. Constantly. Uh, foreign invaders in the Old Testament. Famines. Political weakness. Christianity through the centuries has gone through this. The Dark Ages, all the way to the Reformation and Revival. But then even that, gradually they, the, we see that God abandons the continent of Europe. And then he comes over here and they start a new nation in America where they wanted to really establish freedom of religion. And we see God, great works of God, of thousands and countless of people gathering in the woods to, to, to hear preaching for hours and hours and hours and pre praying and praying. And then all the glory of God that comes out of it. But then God's gl glory, friends, is not unconditional. He can depart. God can abandon the nation. God can abandon the West. Over and over again, history has proven this point. The church needs to awake but the more instead we are move away from God, the, the worse it gets. And, and the, the culprit here is not the government. Oh, if only we had good governor. No, the culprit remains the church. That the church is supposed to be a light, a city on a hill. And are we going to even notice if the glory of God leaves us?
Friends, there is an Eli in every age. His sons, his wives, their grandsons, they will be held accountable for having allowed this to happen because they fail to, to hear the call of God's glory and treating God lightly. We don't want to do that. We instead want to realize that without the glory of the Lord, we remain helpless. That if God goes, so all of our happiness goes. And that as our happiness goes, so God's presence and glory. And so let's now bow our heads and plead with the Lord.